Yesterday was Saturday. How many of you on Saturdays have the to-do list? Things that got to get done that you haven't been able to do during your week. Sometimes it's indoor stuff like the, I don't know, you got to wash and fold and put away laundry, which for some people is like the worst job ever. You got to clean the house, worst job ever. You got to organize this, clean out that garage or whatever. Uh, Sometimes it's the outdoor work, right? It's the um, mowing the lawn, uh, picking the weeds, uh, dealing with the garden. For me yesterday, it was actually cleaning the pool and the pool filter um, is with fall and with all the stuff that comes into the pool there was a bunch of stuff that had to be cleaned up I also have a dog that is um, big time into synchronized swimming and so my dog is always in the pool which means that it gets really filthy really quick and so yesterday it was a clean the pool day so um, that was on my to-do list and, and you know that if you have a lot on your to-do list, like some of us can have like six, seven items on our to-do list, or maybe you're like getting in the car and you got to go like four or five places to get different items, groceries and hardware store, or maybe need to pick up something for the kids this week. You, you, you have these things that you have to get done. But then like when you get them done, yesterday at like three o'clock when I got it all done, And then I could sit on my chair and I could turn on college football. It was like, ah, you know that feeling? Anyone else know that? Like when it's done and it's just like, because it's not hanging over your head. You know those things that hang over your head and they're those things that, you know, like you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, I got to do that. I've been ignoring that for like two months or been, you know, forgetting about that for a couple weeks and I haven't been dealing with that. When it's finally gone, it's like, ah, freedom. I can actually sit here and relax. I don't have this thing that's sort of consuming space and place in my brain or in my life, and I can deal with freedom. I can enjoy freedom. This morning, what we're talking about from the text of the Gospel of John is freedom offered in Jesus Christ, a life that is lived to its fullness And how we receive that. How we get it. Now, John is a unique gospel. And you'll notice that as soon as we begin reading, if you look at some of the other gospels, you're going to see they almost move almost immediately into narrative. Narrative being they're telling the story of how Jesus was born or the beginning of his ministry. John is very different. There's a reason for that. John is actually the latest gospel. It's the gospel that was written the latest, about 10 or 15, 20 years after the other gospels were written, the gospel of John comes. And there's a reason for that. The reason that we hear this gospel, it's still a faithful gospel, it is first person narrative, meaning there were people who were present there, either John or people that he spoke with, the disciples or the apostles or the other people who were part of the early church. So it's a a genuine and it is a, a true gospel. But it's written with somewhat of a different purpose in mind. It's written because it begins to answer some of the questions of the early church. And you can imagine as we begin reading that people are asking questions about who Jesus is. 
We've heard the story and we saw him live on earth. We saw his human form. We saw him do the miracles. We saw him crucified. We saw his tomb. We heard about the resurrection. But help us understand more about who he really is. John, right from the beginning of the text, is beginning to answer some of those questions so that the early church has a true understanding of who Jesus is. Let's jump in. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The word is the name for Jesus, another name for the word of Jesus. It's logos in early Greek. And the word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the life, uh, and that life was the light of all mankind. So right from the beginning of this gospel, we hear John beginning to answer some questions about who Jesus is. The first things that he says is this human, this man, this person Jesus, historical figure that you saw when he was on earth, is God. He is John is putting Jesus and God, and he is saying that Jesus and God are the same. He was with God. He was God. But John is saying even more than that to the early church. He's also saying that Christ is, keyword, eternal. He was in the beginning with God. So Christ has always been, just as God has always been, because God and Christ are one. Christ is part of the Godhead. So John, right at the beginning of the gospel, is answering some of the questions of the church about who Jesus is. And this is important. Why is it important? It's important because our entire understanding of salvation and hope and eternity hinges on the work and and the personhood of Jesus. So if we are going to understand who Jesus is, it gives us a deeper understanding of what we've been given by God in Jesus Christ. That's what John is beginning with right from the text. God offers the best of our existence in Christ that we can possibly imagine. And if we understand who Jesus is and what we are offered, then we can engage more deeply in the understanding of what relationship with him looks like. So, then pursuing relationship with him brings us more deeply into the best things because he is the reason for our existence, right? So making anything else the focus of our pursuit means that whatever we achieve or receive is not the best, but a poor counterfeit of what could be. Let me clarify this for you. So we have over here this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Godhead, the one who is with God in the beginning. We have this relationship with Christ, and we understand that relationship with Christ is the life that was the light of men. Okay, so it's the life, and and if it's not life, then it's death, right? So if you want, and I want life, which I'm assuming you do, you're breathing, you're choosing to continue to breathe. If you want life and you want it to its fullness, you engage in relationship with Jesus. If that's the case, then anything else, if this is light, if anything else is not life with Jesus, what is it? 
If it's light over here, then this is darkness. In fact, we're going to hear more about that light in a couple minutes. So we hear life with Jesus is light. Life without is, is darkness. So I want, think about the mathematical equation, right? The less than. You can see that? I hope you can understand that's the little triangle thing that looks like this that some of you are confused by. I'm confused by to this day when I do math all the time that I do the math. But over here is anything that is less than relationship with Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing about this part of the equation. This can include some really great things. It can include your spouse, for example. What I mean is this. If your marriage and your wife or your husband is the focus of your life, if having a great marriage with them, great relationship with them is your purpose for being, if over here is light, then if, and if your purpose is Jesus, then over here, if your purpose is not Jesus, what is it? What did we say this was? Darkness. Your marriage, if it is the focus of your life, and it is for many, is darkness. Now, listen to me here. I'm not saying that having a good marriage is bad at all. In fact, it is something that helps us understand the light more fully. But if it is the reason for what we do, and the problem is that a lot of people see a good marriage as incredibly joyful. And it is. It is a great, a great marriage is incredibly joyful. But the problem is, if the best life is over there, even if my life is incredibly joyful in a marriage, it's still less than. Okay, so that's one good thing that can be darkness if it becomes the focus. Let me give you a more challenging one. What about your kids? Your family, right? Your kids are your family. So I'm saying to you parents, your kids can be darkness. Some of you already know that. But what I mean is this. We know this is certainly an idol in our world. We have families, we have moms, we have dads whose purpose for their existence is to focus and pour their life, everything that they have into their children. And the problem is, although that can get you a wonderful relationship with your kids and can be incredibly fulfilling and can bring about kids who are gifted and talented and can be a part of doing some great things in the world, it is still less than what it can be. Anything that is not focused solely and completely on Christ and Christ as the giver of the gift of marriage, the giver of the gift of children, the giver of the gift of work, the giver of the gift of education, experience, travel, pleasure. If we do not see the source as Christ and Him giving that gift, but instead see the gift itself as the most valuable thing, then we are giving up something by living in darkness. It is less than. Christ, when he says he is a light and he is a life, anything else is less than, but in him is the fullness of that. And we'll jump into that as we go. Verse 5, continue reading. The light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So there's a little bit of a challenge when we think about these two, two foci in our life, focusing on Christ or focusing on the world and what it offers. And that is that the world and what it offers is not only compelling, but it doesn't often recognize when the light comes. Some of you here can't recognize the light because you don't know the light of Jesus Christ. You don't even know what it's like to live in that light. You know the experience of of this, and some of this can be really good, and it can seem like it's the best thing. I'm standing up here this morning seeking to tell you the truth that the best thing is, in fact, over here, and what you're experiencing over here is, is not nearly the fullness of it, that can, it can be in Jesus Christ because it is still less than. And if that's the, the, the challenge that we live in in a world that is oftentimes darkness, it can blind us. And the problem is, it can catch even the best of us. We can have times in our life, and I hope you're experiencing even right now a wonderful season in Project 119 of growing and being challenged and hearing God speak to you in powerful ways. I hope you are doing that. But we also know, and I know this in my own life, there are times when the darkness can consume me. And there are things that can come and they can take away and I'm not pursuing Christ the way that it was before. I'm not experiencing a, a, a hunger and a longing for him. Instead, I'm focused on anything, everything. My wife, my children, my job. I'm focused on material things. I'm focused on whatever. And we can forget that because the world has power. We know that. The world has power to pull pull us away from Christ. Our world is a place that is transformed by Christ's presence. And as we know more intimacy with him, we experience a deeper sense of freedom. Freedom that the darkness of this world can take away. See, over here is the fullness of life. And the fullness of life is freedom that comes from us knowing we are part of the best things. But the problem that comes when the darkness comes into us, when we get consumed by, by, by material things, when we get consumed by relationship, when we take our eyes off Jesus, the freedom goes away. And there is a lot of you that know that right now. There's people who are here right now in bondage because the opposite of freedom is bondage, right? You're in bondage to what? Maybe you're in bondage to a habit. Maybe a habit like workaholism. Maybe a habit like the pursuit of pleasure. Maybe a habit like addiction. Maybe a habit like complacency. And those things, by their very nature, are taking you away from the freedom, the fullness of a life that is completely and utterly lived in Jesus Christ. And sometimes the worst part is we don't even notice. We get so complacent that we don't even notice what we've lost. 
We don't even remember the longings of our heart when we first tasted and saw the love of Christ, the grace of Jesus, and knew the fullness of the experience of freedom because the darkness is blinding us. Friends, for us to live examined lives, lives that move us more deeply into the daily communion and intimacy, that wonderful word that God has given us, intimacy with Christ. And intimacy means that I am letting him into the depths of my heart and he is coming in. And in that coming in, our relationship is tied more deeply together. When I experience the fullness of that intimacy, that's when I get the greatest experience of freedom. Sometimes I don't even know when it leaves. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Verse 12. See, we have the the difficulty of darkness, but then we hear the hope. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. John makes this really interesting move here in verses 12 and 13. Before we hear about knowledge, we hear words that give us understanding about who Jesus is. We understand more deeply the, the, the theology of, of Christ the Son and God the Father being one and Christ being eternal. We hear that those words, and we learn more. But now, God makes a shift through his word to tell us that in Jesus Christ, we have something greater. He tells us about relationship. It's not just about knowledge. It's not just about feeling. It is about a connection that comes. What is the word that God uses here? Children. Children of God. We become children of God through Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask a question of someone here. This is like my favorite time. I love doing this, calling people out in church. Uh, Pastor Will, you're sitting right there. You have how many children? Okay, so when those children were born, did you have a choice about whether or not they were going to be your children? No. You did not. They came out and they were your children regardless of what you chose. That relationship right from the beginning was sure, yes? It was a relationship that was sure. What God is telling us in his word that as children, his relationship, his engagement, his his interconnection with us is sure. It's not simply a relationship that can we can choose to give away, that we can choose to reject. That God in saying we are his kids, I cannot say to my father, I am not your son. I can't say that to him. Oh, I can try to believe it. I can even act like it. But I can't actually say it truthfully because I will never not be, double negative, you like that? Uh, My father's son. God, when he says we are his children, he is saying it is a relationship that is sure and it is a relationship of love. A father loves his child. This is one of the great tragedies, unfortunately, of our culture. Is that we live in a world that so often doesn't have modeled for it 
loving relationships of fathers with the kids. This is my lament for the fatherless. This is, I think, really important stuff because I want to speak to you dads here. This is important. Please grab onto it. Your kids watch you. You know that already. You think they watch you like 30, 40, 50% of the time. They watch you all the time. They know the stuff that consumes you. They know the passions of your heart. They know the things that are valuable to you. And not only do they know those things, they also know whether or not they experience love and acceptance from you. They know that. And if they do feel love and acceptance from you, they will more easily be able to receive the love and acceptance of God, their Father. Because that's so often what happens, right? When we understand God as Father, if we have a good relationship with our dad, we can have a good relationship, an easy to understand relationship of love and acceptance with our Father. If we don't, then it's more difficult. And the problem is we have many in our culture who are fatherless, who do not know their dads, or if they do, those are relationships of abuse, relationships of brokenness. There are also those of us who we've made mistakes as fathers, some of them big, some of them small. And the challenge is is whether or not those mistakes have hurt our children and how they might understand God. I simply want to put this in front of you this morning, fathers. I want you to understand that not only is your responsibility and task as a father so important because you are blessing your children and preparing them to be the next generation, but that you also are a huge tool in the hands of God in order to teach your children about the love of the father that he has for his children. Doing it well makes it much easier for your child to follow Jesus. Now, I'm not trying at all to discount the work of moms. I, don't, I know that God does not have gender, right? He's not a man or a woman. He's God. And so we understand God as being much bigger than just the, uh, the, the limitations of gender. So I don't want to limit moms important there and, and the value that they bring to that understanding. But I also know that the text of Scripture says Father. And so we carry that image. Dads, this afternoon, love your kids. Accept your kids. Encourage your kids. Yes, discipline your kids, but discipline your kids in love. Be an encouragement to them. And remember the great task that God has put before you. I'm looking at Tom back there, carrying that little child in front of him. The great task that you have ahead is to be able to show your child Jesus, but also to do it in such a way that when they know him, they can get a better image of how much he loves and accepts them. Father, it's a great task ahead. The end of my little lament for the fatherless. Let's dig through verse 14 here. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a powerful text. It helps us understand that God left 
heaven and glory. And I only do it like this. It's hard to say God is everywhere. We understand that, but certainly our image is up. Uh, often we, we get this idea of up for God, right? We say up in heaven. We get this idea that it's above us. Well, imagine that God loved us so much that he left heaven. We understand God as a pursuing God. He could have just stayed there, but he didn't. He came down here so that he might live with us. And he knew that in living with us, that, that work, that, 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 um, that, that work of atonement that he would do on the cross, that coming down and becoming one of us, tabernacling is the word from the English, uh, or from the Greek text. When we understand he made his dwelling among us, he tabernacled with us because in doing that, he gave us a way to the fullness of the life that we understand here. He pursues us. C.S. Lewis uses an interesting description of that. He calls God the hound of heaven. Now, I know for some of you that's a scary image, right? You're thinking to yourself, what are you thinking? Like a German shepherd, right? Or one of those big, those big dogs with big teeth and claws and like drool coming down from its mouth. But I don't think that's the image that God wants us to have about him pursuing us. I think it's more like, I said it in the first service, it's a Pomeranian. I'm going to go a different direction this service. I think it's like a golden retriever. Anyone have a golden retriever here? They are like the most loving dogs on the planet, right? And they just want to be by you. They just want to, want to nuzzle up to you. We used to have a golden retriever when we lived up north. And that golden retriever, we would sit outside and like constantly, I was having to move my leg because he'd stick his nose here and want me to pet him and be sitting on my feet and just wanting to be close because he just wanted to love me and be loved by me. God's a hound, a golden retriever who just can't stay away from you. He cannot stay away from you even when you are stuck in your brokenness, when you are stuck in your sin, stuck in your disobedience, stuck in the darkness of being consumed by anything that is not him. God loves you so much that he will come after you and stick his wet nose on your knee. And he will come. And even if you push him away, he will come back. Why? Because he is a loving God who constantly says to us, I am your God. I'm the God of covenant. I'm the God of promises. I made promises to you. I made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I always am a God who keeps my promises to you. And my promises to you are that I will love you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Even if you say, I don't want you. I love you enough. God says, I love you so much that even when you say you don't want me, I'm coming. I'm coming with my wet nose on your knee. I'm coming with my, with my body blocking the door so you let me in. I'm coming, jumping on your bed, jumping in your life, invading your world because I know that without me, all you've got is darkness. But with me, You have light and life and it to the full. John 10, 10. Quickly move over there. John chapter 10, verse 10. Second part of the section says this. It says, 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But this is Jesus and he says, I have come that they may have life, that you may have life and have it to the full. And I am willing, God says, to come after you, to leave heaven and tabernacle, be with you, die here for you, suffer for you, take all your junk on me. I am willing to do that because I love you so much and you can never, ever, ever get rid of me because I love you that much. Never forget that. Never forget that. Never forget that no matter how far away, no matter how broken it seems, no matter how messy things get, no matter where you go, east or west, north or south, the heights of the heights, the depths of the depths, you can never get outside of God's love. And he will come like that golden retriever. And he won't stop. He won't stop. Because he knows what's best. And what's best for you is him. And you want to live a life of freedom. You want to live a life of hope, of fullness, of light. When it's all said and done, you want a life that matters. Pet the dog. Let him onto your bed. Live with him. Let him take over. Because when God takes over, we live into these characteristics that, that allow us, allow us to live into that freedom. Quickly turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. You're going to read there these words. It says, and now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But then it says at the end, it says the greatest of these is love. So we hear these words about what God calls us to. It's right after that whole text. That's that love chapter. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. All that stuff. And then we get, and the, there are these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. These are really, this is really the blueprint to living a life of freedom. You want to know how to live into this world and not live into this world to always have the greater than as opposed to the less than to be engaged with the one who left heaven and came to earth, who tabernacled with us, who is eternal and one with God from the very beginning. You want to know how to do that? It's faith, hope, and love. Their first two characteristics actually are really interesting because they're actually directional characteristics. What I mean by that is we have faith, right? Now, God has, God implants faith in us. And I know, you know, there's Reformed theology that we could talk through there. I'm not going to go into that heavy stuff. But we understand faith that we believe, right? Hebrews chapter 11. We believe, we trust in something that we cannot see. It means that when you and I have a life that is a mess or when there's difficulties or when there's challenges, you got stuff going on this week, you know what your to-do list looks like, you know what your schedule is. In the midst of all that, what will you believe? Will you believe that it is going to be a mess or will you believe that you just got to work harder or will you have faith 
that God is with you, that he has a plan for your life, that he will take care of you, that he calls you to be obedient, but he also says, no matter what circumstances happen, I have a plan for your life, and it is a good one, a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, a plan for the hope, a hope in a future. Because we're part of God's people, and that's God's plan for his people. So we live into faith. Faith and hope go together. Why? Because then we also understand it's not just a plan, it's a good one. It's a good one. It's a great one, actually. It's a great one to use you and the gifts and your abilities. It's a, it's a great one that redeems the broken things in your life, takes the messes, and makes them beautiful things. Faith says, God has given me a future. Hope says, it's a good future. And we get love. Now, love is a little bit of a different thing because love is multi-directional in the way. We love God, God loves us. But then we also understand the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But then there's a second one. It says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So we get love being multidirectional. We love God. God loves us. We love others. First two are we have faith, we have hope. But out of that, the greatest thing that we can do is love him, being loved by him. And into the world that is dark and lost and broken, we can show love into others. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that sort of life, that's a life of freedom. That's a life where I don't have to worry about my day being worthwhile. I don't have to worry whether or not what I'm doing is right. If I have faith that God has a plan for me and a hope that it is a good plan and I am in love with God and allowing him to love me and that I might love others, I know that my life, the things that I do, I don't need to go home at the end of the day and worry and have fear and have doubt that what I was about that day had value. I can live in the freedom of work being done like a to-do list on a Saturday afternoon, I've lived into the life that God has given me. And I can rest in the assurance that this, this day, this life, this experience that I have now is just a part, just a slice, just a wisp of what eternity with him looks like forever. Let's pray. Living God, hope of the world in Jesus Christ, you have given us freedom. Freedom to live into lives of faith, hope, and love. Freedom to experience the greatest that you offer to us. The greatest that is centered on loving you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. To not being consumed by the things of this world, the things that although they may look good, they may seem so attractive, they may even be applauded in different parts of our culture that they simply, by being the focus, by being our purpose, become darkness. Father, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Give us the wisdom to discern what things are causing our freedom to be taken away. Give us the wisdom to put those things behind us and to live more deeply into that life of freedom that you have for us. I pray, Father, that we can respond to your pursuit of us. 
when we feel you scratching at our door, when we feel your cold nose on our knee, when we feel your longing for our hearts, that our response simply might be, come on in. Come on in and take over. That your freedom in us might reign. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus through which that freedom comes. Amen.